Eric, I don't know that you could have picked a better song. I don't know if you know how well that fit with what we're talking about tonight, but I think that's how the Spirit works. If you didn't know that, the, the Lord knew that that would fit perfectly. And I, I want you to remember those words. Let surrender be the only sound. This series has been, you know, difficult to, to teach through uh, for many different reasons. Part of it was because I knew these next two lessons tonight and next week lessons were coming up. But I only wanted to have these two lessons about same-sex relationships and next week about uh, gender. I only wanted to have those conversations in the bigger context of everything we've been talking about over the last couple of months. So if you haven't been here, I implore you, go back and listen to some of those previous lessons because this is a culmination of thought. Uh, so we're, we're hopefully going somewhere with, uh, with what we're, we're saying, what we're trying to say, what Scripture is saying to us. And I believe that this has application to every single one of us. Not only because you likely have people in your life that are struggling with some of the very things that we're talking about specifically. You have family members, you have friends, you have neighbors. We have members of this congregation who are struggling with same-sex attraction, that are struggling with gender dysphoria, struggling with things like that. These are not issues, they're people. And they're people, hopefully, that you know and that you love. And hopefully you're loving them well. And I hope that the lessons that we've been going through will help you to love them even better. But I also hope, I also hope that every single one of us will first and foremost look at ourselves. Take the logs out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of anyone else's eye. I want to say this really, really clearly. That some of the same-sex attracted Christians that I know, my same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, have taught me so much about life, about following Jesus, about sexuality. I have so much more I want to learn, but they have taught me so very much. And I hope that as we go through these five points tonight, I hope that all of us can see that we all have a lot of work to do. This is not about pointing a finger at anyone. It is about what we're trying to do all year long, reflect and renew. Reflect in what we say, what we believe, on what we're doing in our own sex life, our own sexuality, how we think about romance and marriage and relationships and loneliness and singleness and all of these things, how we think about our own lives before we start telling anybody else what God says they ought to do about their life. So I want to walk through tonight, I want to walk through five different points, um, I think that are all related to each other, and I hope, I hope that by the end that we can see that we all, again, have a log to take out of our own eye. But number one, having a desire to sin does not make you sinful, it makes you flesh and blood human. Can we agree on that? That having a desire to sin does not make you sinful. 
It makes you flesh and blood. This is what the, the metaphor of flesh means in the New Testament. When Paul talks about the fact that we have sin in our flesh, he means that we have this weakness, this propensity towards sin. All of us do. We're all tempted towards sin. Do you know who else was tempted to sin? Jesus. Jesus was tempted to sin. Jesus didn't sin. And that's one reason I know that being tempted to sin does not make you sinful. Being tempted to sin is not the same as sin. Now, I'm not talking about fantasizing. I'm not talking about lust. Obviously, you can sin in your mind. You can sin in your heart. But simply being attracted to a certain group of people, in this case, we're talking about same-sex attraction, but simply being attracted to people of the same gender, people of the same biological sex, that in and of itself is not a sin. It's a temptation to sin. The Bible doesn't really even address that. It doesn't address what we now refer to as things like orientation. The Bible really doesn't address that. It talks about acting upon temptations, and all of us can take this lesson to heart, can't we? All of us can take this lesson to heart, and it's really important for us to remember because Satan would love for you to feel like because you're tempted, you're damaged goods. Because you're tempted, because you have a, a certain temptation towards sin, because you have a struggle with some sin, whatever your struggle is, whatever your desire is, whatever you're attracted by, Satan would love for you to believe that because you have that temptation, you're damaged goods and, and you're hopeless. And you should just, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. God doesn't want you because you have that temptation. And nothing could be further from the truth. The fact that you're tempted simply means you're flesh and blood human. And the people who are tempted with same-sex attraction, they didn't ask to have that temptation or that desire any more than you asked to have your temptations or your desires. And so many of them have prayed and prayed and prayed, and they would want nothing more than to not have those attractions and those desires and those temptations, but they do. And most of them have found that, that nothing they do or pray or, or think is changing the fact that they have these desires. But those desires in and of themselves are not sin. So the church has to be very careful. We have to be very careful here. And we've been guilty here, haven't we? Of shaming people because of their temptation, shaming people because of their desire. We, we can't shame people for their temptations. We can't be afraid of people because they have certain temptations. We can't penalize people because they have certain temptations. And we, we really have to be careful when we're, when we're talking about someone's temptations and talking about them as if they're in a different category from our own. That's a double standard, and, and we, we really need to be careful there, and we've been guilty there so many times, I'm afraid. Number two, it is not the role of the church to discipline or express anger and hostility toward unbelievers for their sin. This is a tough one, okay, and I know it's tough. It is not the role of the church to discipline or express anger and hostility toward unbelievers for their sin. It is our role to invite people to experience the love and forgiveness that we have found in Christ. Okay, now, now if you're in the church, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're held to the standard that God puts forth. If you're in, 
If you've committed yourself to Jesus, then we hold each other accountable. But the people who haven't committed to discipleship, the people who haven't committed to following Jesus, our job is not to tell them how angry we are with them. It's not to be hostile toward them. It's not even to be surprised that people that aren't followers of Jesus don't act like they're followers of Jesus. Why would they act like they were followers of Jesus? The only reason we have adopted this particular sexual ethic is because we believe this wild story that 2,000 years ago, a crucified rabbi was raised from the dead and is now the king of the universe. We believe that. And because we believe that, we said, okay, whatever you say about sex, I'm going to do it. As hard as it is, I'm going to do that. And that's why we've signed on to this lifestyle, not just with our sexuality, but with everything. But those who don't believe that Jesus is the king of the world, of course they don't subscribe to this sexual ethic. And our job is not to express hostility toward them. Our job is to explain to them and show to them, hey, listen, this is what, this is what he does. He forgives people. He loves people. He changes people. We've experienced this and invite them to experience the same thing. Listen as Paul explains this idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul really clarifies something here that's important for us to notice. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Now, we can spend a lot of time there. He tells them don't associate with sexually immoral people. But then he says to clarify, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. I'm not talking about unbelievers who are sexually immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters since if that was the case, then you would need to go out of the world. Paul says, listen, your job is not to shame unbelievers for being swindlers and liars and thieves and sexually immoral. Your job is not to distance yourself and say, you should know better. How dare you act like that? That's, that's not the church's job. It's not. It's not. Now, there is a place for discipline inside the church, but those outside the church, stop shaking your fist at them. Stop shaking your fist at them. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Again, we hold each other to an incredibly high standard. And that's the other side of this coin that we sometimes don't want to talk about. But then the other side is this, is we're trying to hold the world to our standard and not hold each other to the standard. That's exactly the opposite of what Paul says ought to happen. You hold each other to the standard, and you let the world be the world. That's what the world is going to do. You invite them, you show them, you love them, you teach them, but you don't discipline them. That's not your job. He says, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? The implied answer is nothing, nothing. I don't have anything to do with judging them. It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Two different cases. Listen to what he says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them, he tells Titus, the preacher, remind the people at the church in Crete, the churches in Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect 
courtesy toward all people. All people. People you don't agree with, people who have a different sexual lifestyle than you do, people that have a different sexual ideology than you have, people that vote differently than you, show them perfect courtesy. It is not your job to express your anger or your hostility or to discipline them. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, why does he tell them all that lovely, wonderful stuff about Christians getting saved? So that we would remember we weren't always like this. And we wouldn't be like this right now if not for the grace and the mercy of God. So there is no looking down your nose. There is no shaking your fist. There is no wagging your finger. There is no wringing your hands and talking about how bad it is out there. We really have no idea what bad looks like. Bad looks like... the the Greco-Roman world. Bad looked like Crete, where, where Titus was living and working and preaching. I mean, people said about Crete that they're all lazy gluttons and liars. They're horrible people in Crete. Corinth was awful. You can't even imagine the sexual immorality in these cities. You can't even fathom. But the gospel has changed the world. Still has a long way to go, I know. The gospel has changed the world, and it's changed you. If not for the gospel, if not for what God in his mercy and love has done for you, you would be no different, no different. It isn't because, oh, I just followed my common sense. I just knew better, da 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 No, it's not. It's because the, the mercy and the grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And if he hadn't come, you wouldn't know any of this stuff. You wouldn't be living this life. You wouldn't be here right now. You would be doing something totally different. He changed you and saved you. So there's no pride. There's no patting yourself on the back. And there's no looking down your nose at someone else thinking that you're better than them or expressing to them how angry you are because you don't like the way that they're living or the choices that they're making because they haven't chosen. If they're outside of Jesus, they haven't chosen to be a disciple of Christ. But presumably you have. If you have chosen, maybe you're still trying to make that decision, but if you have chosen to be a disciple of Jesus, you are held to the standard of discipleship. Number three, being a follower of Jesus requires surrendering every aspect of ourselves, including our sexuality, to him. Surrender is the only sound. Being a disciple means surrendering everything. Jesus says, you've got to die. You've got to die. And I know a lot of people made the decision to be a Christian when they were, you know, sort of on a high at church camp and, you know, they're just having a blast and it was 
felt good and their friends were getting baptized and they got baptized. And maybe nobody really sat you down and said, this means everything. There's nothing left over to say, well, this, this part of me, this doesn't belong to Jesus and his people. This part of me, this isn't my spiritual life. This is my sex life. This is my financial life. This is my whatever life. That's not the way discipleship works. In fact, I heard a, a really interesting thought just this week. And the, 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 the book was talking about the difference between saying that disciple means student and saying disciple means apprentice. It's one thing when we say disciple means a student of Jesus, but, but that's not quite it. It's more like apprentice. Because I had a lot of teachers that I really liked in school, like good teachers, like tell me more, I want to know more, but I never said I want to pattern every aspect of my life after you. Never. I never had a teacher like that. I want to pattern everything after you. I want to get up in the morning asking, what would Mr. Smith do? That, I never did that. Not a single time. But that's what you're signing up to when you are baptized. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you commit yourself to a life of discipleship, you're committing to saying, okay, in this situation, what would my teacher do? What would my king do? And every aspect of you has to be surrendered to him. And as long as it's not, you are not in a right relationship with God. And we talked last week about things like pornography. We've talked about sex outside of marriage. We've talked about all kinds of things. We're not just talking about same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships. We're talking about all of it, every aspect of you. But since we're specifically talking about our sex lives, let's talk about that. As long as we're saying, I, I still have this one thing over here and I'm not going to trust you with this yet, Jesus. Jesus is trying to convince us that he is trustworthy to give that to him, all of us, all of ourselves. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. The Greek word that we translate sexual immorality, I know that's a big fancy church phrase, the Greek word is porneia. Porneia means any, any sexual behavior that Scripture says, that God says, is not right and good. And we've defined what that looks like. And it's not just, well, we stay together. It is, it is a husband and a wife giving themselves together in love and covenant marriage until death do they part. That's the goal. And everything outside of that, everything outside of that covenant relationship is porneia. It's sexual immorality. And that word sexual immorality, that word porneia, is found 26 times in the New Testament. This is something that the New Testament talks about over and over and over and over again. It was, it was a problem in the first century world, and it's a problem today. And if it exists in the church, it has to be, or I should say when it exists in the church, it has to be cut out. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is everything we've been talking about for the last several weeks, that Christian sexual ethics are not just about rules, about do and do not. It is a unique way of thinking about the human body. 
to understand that sin defiles the human body and that Jesus purified your body. When you were baptized, he purified your body so that your body could become the temple of the Holy Spirit, not a a building in Jerusalem, not a building made with bricks and stones, but your body. And if you take your body and you use it for your own pleasure and entertainment and immorality, you are defiling the temple of God. You are defiling the temple of God. Some of the same people that would never in a million years dream of taking a secular symbol like a flag and stomping on it or burning it are taking a holy place like the temple of God where the spirit dwells and defiling it with sexual immorality. Am I wrong? We we look at secular symbols and say, that's sacred. I would never defile that. But yet we defile our bodies by looking at pornography, by being with someone who is not our spouse. And in this case, we're talking about same-sex relationships that are outside of the will of God. But all of it, all of it, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, this is the decision that you're making. Nobody's forcing you to make this decision. But if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you're saying, I'm going to surrender to him my whole self, including my sexuality. And I'll tell you again, some of our brothers and sisters that have chosen to live a holy life in spite of their same-sex attractions have taught me so much about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because it doesn't just mean that they have to surrender their sexuality, it means that I have to surrender my sexuality. It means you have to surrender your sexuality. It means every one of us have to surrender every aspect of our body, our mind, our heart, our spirit, our strength. Number four, we should always be open to improving the way we read and interpret Scripture. I hope I'm encouraging you that on a, on a daily basis. We should always be open to improving the way we read and interpret Scripture, but, but on guard against changing our approach in order to reach a desired conclusion. This doesn't just apply to this specific conversation. It applies to every topic you study. Because there's what Scripture says, and there's what Scripture doesn't say, but I kind of wish it did. You know? This is what my parents said. This is what I've always thought. And so I'm going to kind of change what I want to come to. And that is happening an awful lot right now in this conversation. A lot. And I get it. I get it. Because we all have a temptation and a tendency to do this. We all have a tendency to say, this is the conclusion I want to come to, and so I'm going to kind of adjust. And we don't know we're doing it. We don't do it explicitly. We don't say it out loud. But but if somebody introduces a way that that helps us get to where we wanted to get anyway, then, then we're really prone to adopt that. So we have to be on guard against that. Whatever conclusion you want to come to, if you want to come to the conclusion that you can be mean and hateful towards your neighbors, you're going to change the way you read Scripture so that you can come to those conclusions. And if you want to believe that you can be with somebody that you desire to be with, even though Scripture seems to say you shouldn't and you can't, you're going to be tempted to find a way of reading Scripture that allows you to do what you want to do rather than what God's will is for you. 
So the real question is, when we go to Scripture, are we going to Scripture to find the will of God, to say, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Or are we going to Scripture to say, how can I justify what I want to do anyway? And if I'm honest, sometimes I approach Scripture with the desire to get the answer that I wanted anyway. And this is happening a lot. And I've read several books and I've listened to several videos and podcasts where people have presented an alternative way to read scripture so that they can come to the conclusion that same-sex relationships are not wrong, that they are acceptable. And I'm afraid this is exactly the sort of things that's happening. Let me give you three common arguments in favor of same-sex relationships, okay? These are fairly common. I've heard all of these multiple times. And that we could go on, but I'll just give you three. Number one, Jesus never condemned same-sex relationships. Have you heard that one? Jesus never condemned same-sex relationship. In a way, I guess that's kind of true, but but that's that's really dishonest too, or or at least just just not understanding what Jesus did say, because Jesus didn't talk specifically about every single sin. And Jesus didn't specifically talk about this sin of being in a same-sex sexual relationship. But Jesus did say, Matthew 15 and verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and these are what defile a person. Jesus talks about sexual immorality. He talks about porneia. Now, as a Jewish rabbi who insisted that he was never going to teach anything that violated the law of Moses, when Jesus uses the term sexual immorality, he has in mind what Scripture says, what the law of Moses says is sexually immoral, which includes a lot of things, by the way. But one of those things, Leviticus 20 and verse 13, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. It's very specific. The law of Moses is very specific. Again, it's not talking about what your desires are. It's not talking about what your orientation is or what your inclinations are or what your temptations are. It's talking about lying sexually with someone of the same gender as someone naturally does with someone of the opposite gender. And and the law of Moses says that's sexually immoral. And Jesus agrees with everything the law of Moses says on sexual immorality. Everything that Leviticus chapter 20 upholds about sexual immorality, Jesus upholds. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said not one jot or tittle would be, would be taken away. That he didn't, come to, he didn't come to take away the law, but to fulfill the law. So when Jesus talks about sexual immorality, he's talking about adultery. He's talking about sleeping with your boyfriend. He's talking about you looking at pornography. He's talking about same-sex relationships. All of that is included in that umbrella term of sexual immorality. Number two, another argument that's used in favor of same-sex relationships. Number two, Paul condemned things like prostitution, sexual abuse, and sex in idolatrous worship, not in monogamous same-sex relationships. Okay, again, again, we, we have to understand that the early church, which includes Paul, got together in a council meeting, Acts chapter 15. I don't know if you remember this story or not, but they got together in a meeting and they had a lot of really hard conversations because now we're bringing in all of these Gentiles 
out there, all of the people from the nations, and the church is going to be multi-ethnic, not just Jewish anymore, what parts of the law of Moses are we going to insist that they follow? And they said, well, they, they can't worship idols anymore, obviously. Yep, okay, no worshiping idols. No eating food sacrificed to idols. No drinking blood. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And no sexual immorality. Now, again, they're specifically talking about what parts of the law of Moses are going to be bound on every new Gentile follower of Jesus. They don't say everything. It's not they, they need to make sure they don't wear clothes that have two different fibers. They need to make sure they don't eat uh, the wrong kind of foods. They, None of those kosher laws were bound on them, but sexual immorality was specified, and every single time that one of the apostles speak to Gentile people, they're telling them, you have to stop engaging in sexual immorality, which again, Leviticus chapter 20 includes same-sex relationships, lying with the same gender as with the opposite gender. But also think about passages like Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Paul says, for this reason, he's talking about sort of the Gentile world. He said, God gave them up, the nations, to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So again, again, Paul is pretty specific here that this is part of the behavior, this is part of, of what is considered by God to be outside of his design for sex, for marriage. And that includes a man with a man or a woman with a woman as is, as is the, the way that God designed it to be. Number three, the word homosexual is a mistranslation and doesn't belong in the Bible. This is an argument I've been hearing more and more lately. They actually have a point here. It's actually an interesting point here. Because again, our modern idea when somebody says gay or someone says homosexual, you might think about how a person is, again, we talk about orientation, we talk about attraction or temptation or desire. That is not what the New Testament talks about doesn't even seem to really be on the radar. But what the New Testament does talk about are behaviors, sleeping with certain people, having sex with certain people. And so it's difficult anytime we're translating from one language to another and we're talking about a certain behavior in one language, well, what's the, what's the English equivalent to that word? And the actual two Greek words that they're speaking of are from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, again, umbrella term, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's actually two Greek words that are being translated here that the ESV has translated as men who practice homosexuality. And again, that, that's that kind of disguises what's going on in the Greek, but the Greek is, is actually really graphic. It's two words, one that means the passive partner in male sex, and the other that means the active partner in male sex. That's what's specifically being condemned here. 
So again, if you want to make the argument that homosexual, that word shouldn't be in the New Testament, okay, but what word are we going to replace that with that helps us to get the idea of what Paul is talking about? Because again, the New Testament is talking about what you do with your body, your body that has now been sanctified by Jesus and now it belongs to him. What does Jesus say that you need to do with your body? And this is one of the things, again, one of many things that Jesus has not to do with your body. I think this is a great argument. It comes from a, a, a brother in Christ named Guy Hammond. I'll tell you more about Guy in just a second. But Guy said this in an interview uh, on the Christian Chronicle. He said, I see no place anywhere in Scripture that talks about homosexuality. He's, again, he's talking about same-sex relationships in a positive light. Trust me, as a man who is homosexually attracted, if I could have figured out a way for me to be able to be with a man, I would have done it because everything inside of me says I was built or wired or whatever term you want to use to be with a man, that my emotional needs and sexual needs would be best met in the arms of a man. Everything inside of me tells me that, yet I keep submitting to another ethic, trusting and believing that that is how God wants me to live. See, guy is willing to be honest and say, these are my feelings. These are my, de my desires. I haven't ever had any others. These are them. But I'm not going to change scripture to fit what I want to be true. I'm going to trust God. And that's not just necessary for guy. It's necessary for you. It's necessary for me. Whatever your desires are, it is necessary that we submit to God and his will as revealed through scripture and not to our own and not to amend or change scripture so that it says what we want it to say. Number five, the church must show incredible patience toward those weighing the cost of discipleship. This is the fifth and I really want us to kind of meditate on this thought. The church must show incredible patience towards those weighing the cost of discipleship. If somebody says to me, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it giving up my life with my boyfriend, giving up my life with my girlfriend, giving up my life of sleeping around, giving up my life on Tinder, giving up my life on whatever. I don't know if it's worth it to follow Jesus instead of this. You know what I'm going to say? Okay. Let me walk with you. Let me be your friend. Let me hang out with you. Come to church with us. I think the church should be incredibly patient, incredibly patient as people weigh the cost of discipleship because Jesus says, don't do it until you weigh the cost. He says, it's like going out to war. This is Luke chapter 14. He says, you have to decide because you're going to have to die to yourself and this is hard stuff, and this is a huge cost and a huge commitment, and so many of us just jumped into the water without thinking twice about it, but this is a huge cost, and for every single one of us, there is a gigantic cost, and that cost looks different for different people, and if somebody is honest enough to say, I don't know if I'm there yet, then I'm going to say thank you for your honesty. I hope, I hope, wouldn't it be wonderful? I think it'd be wonderful if there were hundreds and thousands of people who identified as LGBTQ plus that came here and said, tell me more about this Jesus. I want to know more about him. I'm not sure yet if I'm sold. I'm not sure yet if I want to buy into this. I'm not sure if I want to give up this other, but I'm interested and I want to count the cost. What would it look like for me? What would this look like for me? 
to follow Jesus. That'd be hard. That'd be incredibly difficult. As it pertains to sexuality, all of us have two paths that we can go down. We talked about celibacy and we talked about marriage. Celibacy specifically for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's one option that any disciple of Jesus can go down unless they're already married. And the other is marriage to someone of the opposite sex for the sake of the kingdom of God. And you can choose how you're going to serve the kingdom of God with your sexuality, either through your singleness or through your marriage to someone of the opposite sex. And you say, well, wait a second. If somebody's attracted to people of the same sex, how can they marry someone of the opposite sex? I'm glad you asked. We talked about Guy Hammond a minute ago. Guy Hammond actually started a, a, a ministry called Strength and Weakness, strengthandweakness.org. I encourage you to check it out. He was the son of a Harding graduate. His dad was a preacher. His dad was an elder. Guy, for a time, left the church. He left Jesus. He didn't want anything more with it. He said, I lived a gay life for over 12 years and had gay sex hundreds of times with different men. But then he says this, the Lord in his perfect timing sent someone who invited me back to church. I was skeptical at first, but I knew I needed help desperately, so I pushed through the fear. It took two years of going to that church, hearing the word, building relationships with godly men and women with whom I felt safe and trying to figure things out before I was finally convinced that I wanted Jesus more than I wanted homosexuality. So I repented and placed my faith in Jesus through baptism on August 15th, 1987, and I can tell you that I have not participated in homosexuality since that date. He started this ministry because he prayed over and over again like Paul did, remove this thorn in my flesh. And God said to him, my strength, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. He teaches me so much about following Jesus and surrendering every aspect of myself. I wish I had time to tell you about Lori Krieg. I'd encourage you to check out her website as well, lorikrieg.com. Um, she's on the board of directors of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. I think her website is on the next site. But again, check her out. She's, she's again, same-sex attracted, but she's chosen a life of being married to a man. She's chosen to honor God that way. Both, I, I didn't say this about Guy, but Guy was married to his wife Kathy for over 28 years. He was never sexually attracted to women, including his wife Kathy, but they were married 28 years. They raised four children together. She passed away, sadly, and he remarried in 2019. He's happily married now. Lori is happily married now. There's many same-sex attracted Christians who have chosen a life of celibacy and others who have decided to go into what is called by many a mixed orientation marriage, like Lori and like Guy. But every one of us have to count the cost. Let me end with this thought. I know I'm running out of time. The church must proclaim and embody the message, Jesus loves you and you can trust him even to the extent of surrendering to him your sexuality. That has to be our message. And we can undermine that if we're not careful. The church must prevent that message from being undermined by our own hypocrisy our own hostility, or our own heresy. If we're saying, listen, y'all can't do that, that's sexually immoral, and yet we're doing the same thing, then we undermine the message that Jesus can be trusted with our sexuality. 
If we are putting forth a double standard and we're holding others to one standard and we're holding ourselves to a much lower standard, then our hypocrisy is undermining the message that Jesus can be trusted with our sexuality. Likewise, if we go into the world shaking our fists, why would anyone think that they could trust Jesus or us? We have to help people to know that we were trusted, that we were loved by Jesus and we trust him with our sexuality, not undermine that with our hypocrisy or our hostility, but also heresy undermines this truth. We can't change what is true to fit our desires. And if we do, then we compromise that not only to our own detriment, but to the detriment of the world. This is the message that can save the world. Jesus loves you, and you can trust him. You can trust him to surrender everything to him, including your sexuality. And maybe you're here tonight, and you're not sure yet whether you can really trust Jesus with your sexuality. I encourage you to hang around. Let us keep loving you. Let us give you more reasons to know that you can trust him with your sexuality. And if you have people in your life and they're trying to figure that out, help them to know that Jesus loves them and you can trust him. They can trust him with their sexuality. Let's pray. Father God, this is a hard, it's a hard truth. There is so much cost to being a disciple of yours. But Father, the glory and the love and the acceptance and the togetherness and the reconciliation far outweigh whatever it is we must sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. Help us, Father, to weigh the cost and then to know deep in our hearts and our minds that Jesus is more than worth it. Help us to take the log out of our own eyes, to trust him with our sexuality, and then to tell the world that Jesus loves them and he can be trusted. We pray these things in his name. Amen.